Hello everybody, this is Lucia Kleštincova, your host of Lights on Europe. Today we're shedding light on Slovakia again, but through a different lens, because there's elections coming up on Saturday. So I've invited as our guest Otilia Dan, who is our friend, but also a specialist in political risk in Central and Eastern European countries. So together we look at what are the probabilities of successful long-term government coming out of these elections in Slovakia. What is the broader context of political developments in Central European regions? What is the broader identity question, which she also wrote a book about, and how she manages to bring it to her own family? Because together with her Indian husband, with whom she's been living in multiple countries, she's raising two little kids. Last but not least, you will also hear how you can make yourselves knowledgeable on the labor market of political risk analysts, if this is what is interesting for you as a future career track. So. Tune into this episode and let us know what you think afterwards via social media or here underneath on the podcast channel. Hi Otilia, thanks for accepting the invitation. Hi Lucia, thank you so much for inviting me. This is going to be fun, I think. Yes, I hope, uh, because you're a big role model, I have to say, for many of us, because you're a professional woman, you're a mom, you're just... I don't know what to what to say if you're like out of your maternity leave because that's probably the Belgian version of it which is extremely short Uh, but you seem like you managed to have it all so I wonder what is it that you are primarily what is your favorite subject to be discussing at this stage of your life that you're at is it your baby or is it your career? I think it's a combination of the two, uh, because oftentimes uh, when I was on maternity leave, I would swing by the office and show off my then two months old or three months old son to my colleagues and just quickly discuss how the what the career is going to look like after after I come back uh, back to the office and how we're going to juggle the things along. And given that I work mostly with politics and international relations, having an international baby somehow always comes into comes into the debate. So it's very natural, I guess, for everybody that you're dealing with. And the topic of the week for you, for us, and I'm sure also for the colleagues at your office, is the Slovak elections. Absolutely. That are coming up uh, on Saturday now. So let us look at it uh, first, because it really is the hottest topic of the week. What is it that you see coming? Can you tell us your tip? We always think that... Every election that we go through is the most special one in in recent history and it's going to decide our lives for foreseeable future, which is true in a way. But in, in the case of this election, it probably just feels as not really the sort of the ultimate breaking point of the beginning of the end of one era and the start of a new one, but perhaps the end of the beginning of the building up of, uh, of what's coming next. And I feel that uh, this election is going to produce a very fragmented parliament with perhaps contentious process of uh, building the building the next coalition. And it is quite possible that uh, we will see quite a bit of instability in the in the next 18 months. And we may end up uh, with another round of election fairly soon. I'm sorry, it's not a prettiest picture, but it is something that probably Slovak society really needs to go through. And so isn't that a proof of the fact that it is a special election? Because Slovakia has been through a very painful period of, let's say, two years trauma since the murder of Jan Kuciak and his fiance, and Slovakia did go through a very profound transformation and the nation being able to really step out and step up for their opinions and go to the streets and express what is it that they're after. So isn't the fragmentation that is probably going to appear on Sunday morning, is it the reflection of this feeling? Well, 
my sense is that this may be a transitional election rather than rather than the defining one, uh, because what we will likely see is the sort of the finding the new equilibrium in the in the political system over the over the coming months, figuring out which ones of the of the new parties are the ones that have a real momentum to continue and carry weight uh, with voters. Those ones that the population sees as delivering whatever public goods they are they are expecting uh, from them, and perhaps the defining one in terms of what is going to be the medium-term political future of the country is going to be the next one. Do we need an interim phase? Is it because we don't have good enough leaders in Slovakia to take us immediately into the next future? It really is just a question of how transition works in in general. You need for one system to sort of fade away rather than just be simply simply shattered for something else to be to be phased in. Transitions always take a certain period of time. The question is how long uh, and how quickly can one system transition from what used to be to what is going to be the next phase. What do you think is the next that Slovakia wishes? What is the future that Slovaks want as an opposite to the system that they've been living the past 10 years? Well, you know, it's very difficult to say what Slovaks want because uh, Slovak society is not a, a homogeneous one. We have so many divides in the in the country in terms of geographies and and interests, and often you know talked about division between Bratislava and the rest, for example. Um, Which the so, prime minister has also addressed as part of his campaign tactics, saying that Bratislava doesn't understand the rest of the country. Mm. Yeah, that uh, that is one of the one of the campaign lines that is probably not the first time somebody somebody used it and just using divisions in the society to capture your share of vote rather than capturing everyone uh, is a is a well known one. Perhaps saying how the society as a whole is trending, you know, not necessarily everyone following, uh, but where the society is trending is perhaps more scrutiny of how politics works and of an era of one big party, and we will see what replaces that, that political system. That's sort of the, one of the typical features of our Slovak political system is that we tend to have one big party that captures the more sort of social state-oriented voters and then a bunch of smaller parties that differ ideologically, usually have relatively strong leaders that may or may not have difficulty to get along with each other and effectively trying to outsmart the larger rival in the in in the political market in order to build a stable coalition uh, that has not always been a success uh, for these smaller parties that's why we see sustained periods of uh, of uh, of rule uh, by the by the larger parties and i don't think that this particular characteristic is going to change significantly in the short to medium term future, it's perhaps a question of a new leader who is going to capture that group of voters that look for a sort of a social state uh, with a strong role in the society, who is going to capture that vote. And I don't think we know just yet. And so you've been specializing for many years in the identities of Central Europe. So I wonder to which degree did this feature of striving to have one bigger party and one ruler of, of the country, one strong leader. Is it the feature of Slovaks or is it more of a regional um, identity feature that may be common for the other Visegrad 4 or Central European or post-communist countries? Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting question because uh, all of these, let's call them post-communist countries in, in, in Central and Eastern Europe, they started with one system 
similar to, to each other, not necessarily identical. But they went through their own transitions very differently and built uh, different political systems. For example, in Czech Republic, the divide between the center-right and the center-left was the defining p- feature of the political political system for a very long time. But that seems to have changed uh, in, in recent years. We see the rise of these large tent uh, parties in Czech Republic, in, in Poland with, uh, with the PIS, uh, in Hungary with Fidesz in many ways. So it is interesting that the countries that were different to Slovakia in the region suddenly sort of started to converge on a, on a, on a very similar model. Uh, I wonder what to ascribe it to. I, I suspect it was the economic crisis followed by austerity, followed by what was perceived as migrant crisis, even though honestly we did not really face that much of it in, in Central Europe. And uh, basically a large group of voters looking for the strong leader to supply easy solutions to very complex problems. And so we hear that you love discussing this kind of subject. It's been your bread and butter for many years. A bit of a, on a bit of a more personal note, why have you decided to dedicate your career to these subjects? Because we've always been brought up with this feeling of not belonging, being the little country in Central Europe, which always needs to be part of a b- bigger membership entity somehow. And so I wonder what is it that inspired you to start looking deeper into the identity questions of Central Europe and how Slovakia plugs into the regional family? So. Actually, it all started as a punishment for not attending a seminar on history of diplomacy uh, because uh, my uh, lecturer at the, at the time in, uh, at the University of Matevel in Banska Bystrica decided that the suitable punishment was to force me to read Russian original of uh, Alexander Dugin's Basics of Geopolitics. Uh, and as I read the book, I realized that this is something the ideas of sort of control of uh, of uh, Central and Eastern Eastern Europe as a sort of a historical battleground for who dominates the world is something that I actively want to fight against. And I chose to do my undergraduate degree, then my master's degree at uh, the University of Oxford and my PhD in definitions and understanding what Central Europe is, isn't, why do people come up with definitions of Central Europe, usually because of their own power interests, uh, and how do these concepts influence the real world politics. So obviously we're not going to go into analyzing what you've done in your book. Everybody's invited to buy it if they're interested. Tell us once again what's the title. Uh, it's called The Idea of Central Europe. It's very simple. Explain a little bit in one sentence what is it that you refer to when you say it's in the power interest of somebody to label country or not as a Central European. What do you mean by that? So. What we usually term Central Europe in these days, and there is a reason why I phrase it that way, is a bunch of relatively small countries uh, with disparate interests uh, that uh, are somehow wedged in in between larger neighbors. Uh, Even though Central Europe as a concept, as a name, or the two words used together, uh, actually started as a pan-German notion in the the mid-19th century, it developed eventually into descriptions of attempts to construct federation in this space between sort of Germany Germany and Russia in order to build a strong entity that would be able to resist pressures from both sides. That did not fly for various reasons after the First World War because of the disparate interests of individual countries and relatively rampant 
nationalism. Then it was brought back again as a, as a project for federation by exile governments in, uh, uh, in London, uh, especially by Czechoslovakia and Poland. In fact, uh, those exile governments did sign a treaty of confederation. It just never was brought to life. Uh, and then it was brought back again when uh, some of these countries were actually thinking that they don't necessarily want to be a part of either bloc and it was constructed as a sort of a buffer uh, in between the two Eastern and Western blocs. So it's always somebody's interest to present the interests of their own country or their own group uh, that they identify with, let's say, exile government or dissidents, to present themselves as representing a broader region and having a larger political base in order to negotiate with larger partners on the, on the European stage. And this is exactly what we see currently. I said in 2007 that I will be rather worried the next time I see a concept of Central Europe because it was going to be a concept of othering from what we have right now. Uh, and that's the membership of the EU and the membership of NATO. And that's exactly what happened. We, we started to have a talk of illiberal Central Europe, Central Europe being different to the, what was the only game in town, you know, the, the, the liberal internationalist paradigm of the, of the 1990s. And uh, the idea of uh, sort of Central Europe being different is really just saying that there are political players that would like to build a power base that would be defined uh, along the margins of their own uh, own political ideas and build this uh, sort of a more regional base that they can represent in order to be able to be an effective negotiator on the European level. So ultimately you managed to turn all this into your career after you've become a political risk analyst. Mm -hmm. But many of us in town and not even outside of this town, not even going into that, don't really know what this is as, a, as an industry because for some they would know very well, but for many it may sound as an undercover intelligence operation where an information analysis can turn into more profitable businesses, maybe valuation of the businesses on stock exchange. So can you explain us a little bit more? What is this industry that you're now face off? Mm. So I'll, I'll, I'll make it as simple and as vivid as I can. Uh, political risk analysts get paid for telling their clients what is going to be on the front page of the FT tomorrow, not what is there today and help them understand it. We can do that as well, uh, and we often do, uh, trying to help our clients to understand what has just happened in some uh, some political uh, political crisis in a, in a given country or sort of larger trends uh, in global politics. But where we really add value is to help our clients understand what is coming their way in the sort of near to, to medium term future. So helping them understand what are the likely scenarios for the forthcoming uh, elections in Slovakia or some, or some other country, helping them understand what the policies of an incoming uh, government in one or another country uh, are going to look like or are most likely to look like and what does it mean for, for their business. And uh, given the nature of, uh, of what we provide, we really mostly work for uh, either financial markets, so large international banks or uh, hedge funds, um, or then we have a very sort of comparably, comparably large uh, other group of clients and those are large international companies that have presence all around the world and they need to understand uh, what are the risks and opportunities that they are facing in individual geographies where they are present. But really it's not as glamorous as it, as it sounds. 90% uh, of, the, of the job of a risk analyst is to sit in front of the computer and read open source information and pick up a phone to call a number of people uh, on the given question that they are investigating and then writing up a report for, for a client. In many ways, it's quite a lonely job. Do you have a crystal ball? 
No, I don't, but I pretend that I do. Uh, <laughs> and you're but, paid for it. <laughs> yes, but uh, it, this is probably the most difficult part of the of the job of uh, of the risk analyst because you need to be confident uh, in telling the client what is going to happen. And you know very well that from time to time you're going to be wrong and you're going to be dead wrong. And you probably told BBC or somebody else in the morning how is it going to go and, you know, it's everywhere online and you're just dead wrong. Uh, and you need to turn up to, to the office the next morning and be equally confident on something, you know, different on, on that given day and just, you know, tell the clients with, you know, uh, utmost confidence that this is the way it's gonna go. Even though yesterday you were you were that wrong, and uh, I. So seen... how do you justify that? How do you maintain that face and the credibility with the other clients when I guess it's a probabilities game in a sense, and you give it them is. some kind of probabilities of uh, what are the odds that the scenario will manifest? Indeed. So there is one way of you know hedging it, telling them in advance that there is a sixty percent chance of that and forty percent chance of that. Uh, but really, you are telling them that you think it's gonna go that way if you tell them sixty percent. Um, the way to go about it is that your clients know that from time to time you're going to be wrong. It's just a question of uh, you know percentage of your of your wrong calls, and I and I did keep a track of how much we were wrong and uh, and my team, uh, and uh, we were eight percent wrong, so ninety two percent correct or thereabout, uh, and that's a good feeling, you know that uh, you you can you can tell like okay this is how it's been for five years and. It's okay, you know. The clients, clients are relatively happy. Occasionally, we go wrong and uh, we raise our hands and we're like, okay, you know, this was a stupid call. Sorry for that. Uh, and next time, we'll we'll do it better and we'll learn from from the mistake yeah. we made. Uh, but really, just you know, it requires a little bit of intellectual arrogance to go out there the next day and just be equally confident as you were the day before and just forget that uh, you made a complete fool of yourself. Beautiful, beautiful. I wonder when you look at the skills that have made you who you are and people. I mean, the profit that you were mentored by and the people who are in your team, how does that change with the AI and the new technology being on all decks? I assume that the nature of the analyst job today is completely different to what it was 10 years. So I wonder if some junior or younger people are listening to us now and if they were dreaming of becoming a good political risk analyst one day, what is it that's going to make them really competitive on the market because mm -hmm. for sure the skills are slightly different to what you were gr growing up with when you were preparing for the job. So actually you would be surprised. Uh, it has been very difficult so far to implement automation into, into political risk. And that is because what we ultimately analyze is human behavior. We are looking for solutions, the whole industry is looking for solutions because it would be making our lives significantly easier if we could you know, automate a, a part of our work. But so far it has been quite elusive. Uh, we have seen some of our colleagues developing products that can automate part of our job. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there is a company that can relatively well uh, forecast uh, changes in um, sovereign credit ratings. But these are sort of partial partial solutions and not a sort of, you know, artificial general intelligence for political risk forecasting. So really, it has not changed that much. We wish it would, because it would free our hands to spend more time on sort of really deep dive into, into analysis. But what we see as compared to sort of five or six years ago, we really have not changed that much. But I feel that it is coming because people are looking for solutions and eventually they will find them. And my suggestions for students uh, going into political risk careers is that what really makes or breaks their entry into the field is uh, 
whether they have lived and worked in the area that uh, they want to analyze, because it usually works on regional, regional form of analysis, their ability to write quickly, concisely and coherently, usually in English, and then really their, uh, their ability to make a confident forecast. And that's not a given. There is a lot of people who are fantastic analysts of, of what happened, but have a difficulty envisioning what are the likely outcomes of current situations. And the easiest way to break into the industry is just start writing, publish, try op-eds, try blog, do something to get your name out there because we are watching. We need freelancers, we need new colleagues, we need young blood, and we read everything that's worth reading. So if you write something that's worth reading, we'll see it. Excellent. <laughs> Who were the people, the books, the role models that impacted you most on the way? I'm sure this kind of wisdom doesn't come on its own and probably you've, you've mirrored some important people in your industry on the way. Oh yeah, so I'm just going to sing praises for my former bosses. Uh, I'm sure that hopefully we'll be all happy. I started in really forecasting and building indexes at the Economist Intelligence Unit uh, with my colleague uh, Vanessa Sanchez, who was a really big role model. She's currently with uh, Fed in New York, leading their modeling unit. Then uh, it was Ian Bremer at uh, Eurasia Group, Wolfgang Opicoli at Eurasia Group and then uh, at Tano, and an absolutely amazing role model that we uh, had at Tano Intelligence a couple of years ago, that was Jim Shin, uh, who is a quantitative risk uh, forecaster and currently leads his own business called Predata, looking exactly at modeling uh, human behavior in an automated way, if possible. A couple of recommendations for everybody listening Absolutely. to follow some more people. Do you feel called to start giving back a little bit more to Slovakia? I try. Uh, I try to coach students uh, if, if they are looking for careers in international politics or uh, political science in, in general. I also try to go back to my university, if, if possible, sometime soon to talk about uh, geopolitics in, in general. Uh, but unfortunately, given the fact that I have an international family, it probably means that I will not be able to, uh, to move back to Slovakia in any uh, short-term or, or medium-term future in order to contribute more to the society. And so how do you deal with the whole identity question at home as an identity expert, as a Central European citizen and a wife of an Indian guy? Who is it that's growing up in your household, the two little babies that you've got? How do you reconcile the, the multiple cultural identities and obviously being super smart about going about it? I assume it might be a bit of a clash sometime or is it easy? Uh, actually, we try not to deal with it because both me and my husband, well, he comes from India and studied in Germany and we spent both of us a very long time in, in London and then moved to Brussels because we were just thinking that maybe grass is greener somewhere somewhere else. It is, it's been five years, we're enjoying it. Uh, but as a consequence, we don't really have deeply rooted, strong identity in terms of that we just feel as one particular sort of national, national person. Even though we feel very strongly uh, for our countries, we are not really sort of, you know, nation state proponents. Uh, and we really believe that having a global identity is just fine. And this is what I think that our children will become. Uh, we have a three-year-old daughter and a four-month-old son, and the daughter speaks Punjabi to, to her father, Slovak to me, uh, French to all the kids, because she thinks that all kids speak French. And she can understand more and more English, which is quite worrying, because we don't have the secret language anymore. 
And uh, I, I think that they will just have to find their own identity. You know, it, it may well be Belgian because we live in Belgium. Uh, we don't know yet. We try to uh, bring them to cultural gatherings of uh, of both uh, sort of on the Indian side and on the on the Slovak side here in here in Brussels, and just teach them what their multiple cultures are are really about. And we will let them choose their way through them. And I think it's going to be a wonderful journey of discovery for, for both of them and for us. This is, I feel, an eternal question of the multicultural families here in the expat cities, where you always keep these conversations, where you wonder how to strike the right balance between obviously giving the freedom to the, to the kids to, to live their life and on the other hand to not overmanage uh, their education. Because in particular, when you speak about rather minority languages, like mm-hmm. Punjabi and Slovak mm-hmm. are in these kind of communities, if you let it go organically, they wouldn't really learn the language and wouldn't pick up the culture unless you try to manage it for mm-hmm. them, in a sense, and keep them exposed and organize the holidays and activities for them. Mm-hmm. Is it something that's on your mind? Or Because I hear sometimes from the other professionals that it gets exhausting at some stage and they just let it go and, and then try to have the grandparents take over for a while, mm-hmm. but ultimately they will never be able to teach them equally all the identities that are around them. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I think it's just natural that at some point you, you will find out that you know maybe something is not feasible to, to, to really do, but you try to teach the children as much as you can. Uh, in my case, I'm just being super practical. I know that uh, my children will go for summer holidays to Slovakia and they just need to be able to speak to my parents. Who, my dad speaks English, uh, but neither uh, of them speaks French and my mom really only speaks Slovak. And I'm sure that they will find a reason to, to, to learn Slovak only if it's because of the fairy tales. But I'm just being perfectly practical and uh, just know that uh, there will be a practical necessity uh, for them to both understand and, uh, and speak Slovak. And we'll see how it goes with the rest. Uh, my husband is really trying very hard uh, to, to teach them Punjabi because that's a kind of a language that's out of fashion. Even in India, you know, all, all people in India uh, are teaching their children either well, really English and, and Hindi and Punjabi sort of look down upon as a language that you sing songs in and, you know, looks really cool in movies, but that's, that's about it. Uh, and he's really putting hard work into it. He's been communicating with people in Canada to get to books for children to educate them in, in, in Punjabi. And it's very hard for him. And he knows that he's going to be the only one speaking Punjabi to them. So let's see how far it can go. But uh, he wants to give it a fair shot. Beautiful. And so the last question that I wonder, how can we answer to in a non-cliche way? What is your trick to managing all this that you're up for? Managing the kids and the household and the career and talking to me about how you're hitting the gym three months after <laughs> giving the birth. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's my husband. You know, the, uh, the answer is simple. Uh, hello, Adi. Uh, it's, uh, it's all thanks to you. Uh, it's, it's really, you know, trying to divide tasks at home half-half and uh, his job is more flexible. He works in automotive research, so deadlines are not as tight as they would be in uh, in political risk. So uh, it, it almost never happens that he would have to stay at work late and cannot, you know, finish something tomorrow or, or the day after. Uh, so it's the flexibility of his job, his really keen interest in being, uh, you know, the, the real driving force in the in in the household, and being uh, the one who is really actively bringing bringing up our children. So it's just really sharing sharing tasks at home helps to be active in your in your career and the support that he has always provided for my PhD and uh, my various attempts to do 
this and that and uh, study again. I did an MBA two years ago and he was there at home with, uh, with our then one and two year old daughter and he's been super supportive in, uh, in all my wins uh, that come along the way. So I would really agree with the statement that the most important business decision you make in your life is the choice of your life partner. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. It's always an honor to speak to you. I wish you all the best. Let's see how the elections go. And maybe let's speak again in two years, uh, depending on whether we have the preliminary elections soon or not. I may be super confidently wrong, but let's see in two years. We'll hold you accountable. (laughs) Please do. Thank you so much for the invitation. Have a lovely day, everyone. follow-up you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms including our instagram lights on europe so feel free to go there now and leave us your review like feedback as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time bye